Well, a very good morning to you. Welcome to Brighton Road. Thank you for joining us in worship this morning. And a warm welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Let's have a moment of quiet. Walk softly as you come here, for this is holy ground. God dwells in this place. God, the Lord of time and space, was here before us and is here with us now. So tread carefully as you come here, for this is holy ground. By God's life-giving word, every creature was spoken into existence and is loved into eternity. God, the Lord of abundant life, was here before us. And he is here with us now. Walk quietly as you come here, for this is holy ground. Now is the time. Here is the place. Listen intently to God's Spirit within you. To see, as perhaps for the first time, the hidden depths of Christ's suffering for you. To welcome him in his resurrection, grace and power. And to look expectantly for the signs of God's kingdom around us and within us. And so, holy God, softly and carefully and quietly, we come here celebrating your presence within us, amongst us and between us. Here in this church or in our homes, thank you that you are God with us, this day and always. Amen. So can I invite you to stand and we'll sing together, I believe in Jesus. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And we recognise that we are far from perfect. We speak too much. We rarely listen as we ought. We move when we should be still and we stay put when God calls us into action. We do what we should not and do not do as we should. But Christ calls you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He is the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world. And so from our self-centeredness, our contradiction and the fragmentation of our lives, let's turn to Christ and pray. Lord, forgive us when we get it wrong. Forgive us when we harden our hearts against you. When we close our hearts against you and to each other. Help us to hear your voice. When we hear you knocking, give us courage to open the door. Thank you for your promise that if we open our hearts to you, you will come So stretch out your hand to us, the hand that was outstretched on the cross. Stretch out your hand to us again and welcome us into your presence. Lead us into a future surrounded by your love. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And he bids you receive his promise of forgiveness to be released from the burdens that bind you. Open the door of your heart and with confidence walk into the future surrounded by resurrection hope because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Hallelujah. Let's stand and sing together. Love divine. All love's excellent.
Reverend Carol, I wonder if I could invite you to join me at the front for a couple of minutes, please. David, you've done this to me over the past few years on Christmas Day. Uh, it falls to me to, to give you a gift from some of your friends and colleagues here at church before you and Carol depart for view. This is a sad day for us. I'd like to say thank you both for all that you've done. Carol, looking back at the records, you, you joined the church um, 94 and then came back in 2006, we worked as treasurer since then, bless you, and worked pastorally with the children, always cheerfully, happily, steadily, keeping us in the black, and uh, very much appreciative to you of all that you've done. David, the previous search secretary didn't say uh, when you first joined the church, he didn't update the digital records, so I don't quite know when that was, but I gather you grew up here. It's never easy to be a leader in a church where you've grown up, but you stepped up and you've shared your gifts with us. You came at the end of a particularly troubled time here. You guided us safely through COVID. COVID. In some ways, you bled yourself dry for us. And we are very grateful to you for the gifts you've used, the way you've used them, and for who you've been. You've both been an immeasurable blessing to us. And this, this comes with a token of our love and our gratitude to you. So can I adapt a Celtic prayer for you and send you on your way? This is gardening vouchers, by the way, because I gather you have a blank area in your home. So our blessing is, may the Lord rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. The rains fall soft upon your garden. And until we meet again, and we trust that we will, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. In Jesus' name. Lord bless you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to let you get away with it. <laughs> you'd expect me to say something, wouldn't you? Of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things about being part of the worship group is you get to see the order of service week by week. And there was something on it this week that said presentation. And I always oh, wonder. So I thought about this. <laughs> I know. I know. You see, it happens. It happens. So I, would ju- I, just, I just wanted to say, because... I think it's it's pretty much 50, well, 56 years ago to the week or thereabouts that my parents moved to Horsham. Um, and I started coming here when I was four. And I was just thinking about people in the church who played a, an impact on, had an impact on my life. And I was thinking my first memory of here is, is sitting on the old oval, multicoloured rush mats in the old hall. For those of you who remember those, in Beginners, and Mary Smith leading Beginners. Um, and, uh, and Dennis uh, was one of my um, son- Dennis isn't here this morning, is he? Dennis is one of my Sunday school leaders. Uh, and Jeff, Jeff, it's good to see you here this morning. Jeff, you played a huge part in, 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 in that sort of, when I was that 11 to 13 year old, you know, really developing my faith. So I have to say, and I'm sorry, I'm not talking about half my wife here, she can say something if she wants to, but I have to say that this church, you know, this is where I grew up, this is where I found God. And, and this is where my relationship with him developed. And so I am hugely grateful to all of you, um, not just those I've mentioned, but those that I was thinking about that have, you know, that have played a massive part. So thank you. And the opportunity to do all the stuff that's been sort of possible. So thank you. You said things? No. <laughs> Children and young people are going to leave us for a shorter time, just going upstairs until the end of the service. But we pray God's blessing upon you as you go. Have a great time, learn about Jesus, and uh, yeah, God bless you and your leaders as you go at this point. Thank you.
Our first reading this morning is taken from Isaiah 52, uh, the first 12 verses. Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. All day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out of it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Amen. And sing together, there is an everlasting kindness.
Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to praise you in our inadequate way. Lord, we thank you that you have created for us a world that provides for all our needs without our working seven days a week. Thank you for Sabbath rest and refreshment and our fellowship in worship and praise of you, our maker, saviour and friend. We who are older and enjoy retirement, thank you for those who work and so provide for our needs and free us with more time to fellowship with you in prayer and reflection in our later years. We recognise that the world system is broken by sin and many work hard and yet their needs are hardly met and they have little Sabbath rest. Help us to search ourselves to see where we have taken more than our needs and left others with little. Forgive us, Lord. Since Old Testament times, many have migrated, escaping hunger and oppression, only to find more oppression where they have sought to settle. Lord, show us how to share your bounty and forgive our cold hearts. Lord, we believe you made us to live in fellowship and love with you and each other, and yet many have ignored the offer of your friendship and face others with indifference or enmity, creating strife and war, leading to death and destruction. Lord, we are part of this system, and we long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and for the forgiveness of sin and for Jesus to come and claim his kingdom and our allegiance. Father, we thank you for the fellowship of believers that unites us here as we pray for each other. Some of us bear burdens of health or age, and for them we pray for healing and strength. Some have experienced bereavement, and for them we ask for comfort and consolation. Some are anxious for children, and we pray especially for them and the young people among us. Lead them to know you as saviour and friend, we pray. Lord, lead us in our wish to reach out to the needs of their neighbourhood, both spiritual and material. Make us a blessing to them, and finally we ask that you will lead us all into a closer walk with you as we await your return. Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. Lord Jesus, thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Amen. Our second reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 6, from verse 11 to chapter 7, verse 4. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? 
What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of, of, of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Come, people of the risen King, let's stand and worship him together.
If I open my heart to you, I'm going to speak honestly. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm prepared to be vulnerable with you because I love and trust you. It's the kind of relationship Paul was longing to have with the Corinthian believers. And if church, as it should be, is a safe place for us, anyone to belong, it's the kind of relationship we should work towards having with each other as well. Open hearts. You sense that Paul is speaking the truth in love as he tells the Corinthians that there is room in his heart for them and he's not holding back on his love for them. At the same time, you get a sense of pain and distress as he says it feels as though they are holding back in their love for him. And he begs them to make room in their hearts for him. His heart is wide open to them, but it feels as if their hearts are closed against him. And that's a source of grief. If we talk about being open-hearted with each other, then we speak frankly with each other, we can be candid and straightforward with each other, and that honesty isn't threatening because we trust each other to speak the truth in love and we, we seek to listen in that spirit as well. An open heart is one which is characterised by kindness, warmth, compassion, generosity and grace. Open-hearted people are able to inspire confidence rather than fear in those they talk to. And I think it would be fair to say that the more open-hearted we are with each other, the more we reflect the gracious, generous, loving heart of God. Are you with me? All well and good. But slap bang in the middle of all Paul's fine-sounding words about being completely open-hearted with each other, comes a passage which actually sounds a very different note indeed. Instead of warmth, compassion, generosity and grace, we find language that sounds excluding, othering, rejecting of difference. Unbelievers have nothing in common with them. The contrasts are completely oppositional. Righteousness versus wickedness. Light versus darkness. Christ versus the devil. Divine worship versus pagan idolatry. It's a call to radical holiness. If you are the temple of the living God, the place where God dwells, as indeed you are, then you need to separate yourselves from unbelievers and have nothing to do with them. If you want to be accepted by God, you must shun all contact with them. They will contaminate you, body and spirit. And if you want to honour God as your father, then you need to cleanse yourselves from everything about them that defiles you and rededicate your lives in holy worship to the Lord Almighty. Strong, uncompromising, uncomfortable stuff. Words which make it clear that if we are to be God's holy people, there's no room for compromise with evil. There are times 
when that note needs to be sounded loud and clear. 1930s Germany, when the church sold its soul to the Nazi regime, acquiescing in subsuming the gospel into Aryan ideology, there were those who called for true believers to separate themselves from a church that had lost its way and had been hopelessly compromised. Today, when we see the Russian Orthodox Church giving religious support to the invasion of Ukraine, we recognise the need for a call for believers to step back out of a situation where the church becomes the mouthpiece of Vladimir Putin rather than the mouthpiece of God. And in our own country today, there are those who feel that the large swathes of the church are abandoning traditional Christian moral absolutes in favour of a cultural relativism where anything goes particularly when it comes to gender identity or sexual ethics. And there are those in the evangelical wing of the church who feel it's time to heed that call and come out and be separate from those who've departed from the core truths of Scripture. But others aren't so sure. For all its clarity, there are those who struggle with this passage because of its tone, and also because, to be frank, it looks a bit out of place in 2 Corinthians and in Paul's letters as a whole. It jars as you read through the letter. What happens if you read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1 and leave those verses out? Paul says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open our hearts wide to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Did you spot where the break came? Did you see where the verses were missing? All that stuff about the world being black and white rather than various shades of grey comes between Paul saying, open wide your hearts also, and his appeal, make room for us in your hearts. The, the duplication, perhaps, is the key. But there are those who say that this call to come out from them that intrudes into what would otherwise be a coherent flow of thought. There are some who say it doesn't belong there at all, actually. It doesn't sound like Paul at all. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that people in the church should dissociate themselves from brothers or sisters in Christ who are leading immoral lifestyles. But then he says, I'm not talking about people outside the church who might be sexually immoral or greedy or dishonest because if you had to avoid contact with them, you'd need to leave the world altogether. Yet in this passage in 2 Corinthians, that's precisely the course of action Paul seems to advocate. Come out from them. Separate yourselves from them have nothing whatsoever to do with them. They are wicked idolaters who belong to the realm of darkness, where you are God's holy children who belong in the kingdom of light. So people point to an inconsistency between what Paul says here and what he says in 1 Corinthians, and on top of that, much of the vocabulary in this passage and how that language is used don't cohere very well with what we read elsewhere in Paul's letters. It almost looks... Like Paul had a glitch 
and he starts expounding the views he would have held as a Pharisee before his mind and heart were opened through meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Kind of laps back into that mindset of holiness means godless Gentiles, you shun them altogether. And yet despite the inconsistency, there's no evidence that this passage has been inserted from outside into this place. People have said, is it Quran theology? Is it you know, some kind of other stuff that's come in? It's there in black and white. In the centre of this passage about opening our hearts to each other, there is this call to come out. So what's going on? Why does Paul write these words? Why is there this juxtaposition of such jarring different types of language? Well, perhaps the key question to ask is, why is it when Paul says his heart is wide open to the church in Corinth, why does he feel they've closed their hearts against him? And one of the reasons is that their relationship with Paul had been compromised by people he describes as super-apostles. People who'd come into the church from outside. Jewish believers who were saying, Paul's got it wrong. He's not telling you the true gospel. He says faith in Christ will save you. It's not enough, actually. You can't be a follower of Christ unless you obey the law of Moses. Unless you start to be holy like Israel is called to be holy. Putting in place that radical distinction between righteous Jew and sinful Gentile. Look at the place you're living in. Corinth. What a godless, depraved city that is. You need to be completely separate and distinct. The language that we find in the middle of our passage today looks like the kind of thing that could have been said by those who were opposed to Paul and his message that people were saved simply by keeping faith in Christ and not by keeping the law. And if that's the kind of language that Paul's opponents used and it fits the bill, as far as their theology is concerned, the Corinthians would have recognised where that rhetoric came from. Because they would have heard it before. And at the end of his letter to Corinthians, Paul punches, Paul, Paul pulls, no punches, when he describes the ardent advocates of exclusivism as false apostles. Workers who are as deceitful as Satan is when he disguises himself as an angel of light. As far as he's concerned, their message is a travesty of the true gospel of Christ. They're not true believers. So it's possible, actually, that what Paul does at the end of 2 Corinthians 6 is he turns the guns of his opponents against them. The Corinthians would have heard this kind of language from the super-apostles, telling them they needed to shun the sinful depravity that characterised the city of Corinth. Now, listening to Paul's letter, being read to them by, by someone who understood the point that Paul wanted to get across, they'd hear the same words from Paul, telling them to shun all contact with unbelievers, meaning the super-apostles, those whom he polemically characterises as lawless believers in league with Satan. Because for Paul... It's the narrow-minded legalists who have distorted the gospel by putting Moses before Christ. So Paul calls on the Corinthians to have nothing more to do with them. They are the target of this passage. 
not the city in which they live, it is those who have departed from the gospel of Christ by their false theology. And Paul calls on the Corinthians to open their hearts to him once more and rebuild the relationship of love and trust that these interlopers have destroyed. So, by turning their own othering language against them, Paul excludes the excluders. The measure they use is the measure they get. Those who deny grace do not receive grace. As far as Paul is concerned, he's defending his congregation against an attempt by these super-apostles to replace the liberating gospel of Christ with a confrontational form of exclusive legalism. And he's giving them the taste of, his own, of their own medicine. Paul is telling the Corinthians this is how they should treat those who deny the gospel by replacing the grace of Christ with the law of Moses. Now I'm conscious that some of you may feel I'm just manipulating the text, calling black white. Whatever happened to the plain sense of scripture? Whatever happened to the obvious meaning of the text? And I'd respond by saying everything needs to be interpreted in context. And this reading at least explains why we find such a narrow, rejecting exclusivism in the middle of an appeal for open-hearted acceptance. Paul says to the Corinthians, open your hearts to me again. Have nothing to do with those who've turned you against me in the past. It's a call for them to realign themselves once more with him and with his gospel. So it's possible to read this passage in terms of Paul defending what we today might call a generous orthodoxy. And I'm totally with those who say that true Christian orthodoxy cannot be narrow, pinched, or defensive, but always spacious, adventurous, and unafraid. The orthodox, traditional, classical Christian faith should by definition always be generous as our God is generous, lavish in his creation, binding himself in an unconditional covenant, revealing himself in the calling of a people, self-sacrificing the death of his son, prodigal in the gifts of the Spirit, justifying the ungodly, and indeed offending the righteous by the indiscriminate nature of his favour. The problem is that when you read Christian history, that's not how defining orthodoxy has tended to work. Orthodoxy has tended to be defined by those who shout the loudest and are the best at putting down their opponents. That's why, and you may not realise this, actually, Baptists have a historical mistrust of statements of faith. Uh, we, don't, we don't use statements of faith in the Baptist church because there's always been a recognition that if you are saying this is the true faith, you are saying that those people over there, I won't point that way for, for in case of being misunderstood, those people over there have got it badly wrong. In actual fact, we've done that loads and loads of times. Most of the Baptist churches in Horsham were worth planted because we disagreed with each other for something or other. Um, but good Christian orthodoxy should be generous-hearted in its spirit. 
Orthodoxy has rarely been formulated in the spirit of the grace of Christ. Proponents of a general orthodoxy point to the example of Chester Wenger. He served as an Anabaptist Mennonite pastor for 65 years. He was ordained in 1949 and he was deregistered by the church at the age of 96 for officiating at his gay son's wedding. He graciously said he was at peace with the church's decision and he wrote them an open letter in response and this is part of what he said. When our gay young adult son, about 35 years ago, was excommunicated from the Mennonite church by a church leader, without any conversation with him or his parents, my wife and I grieve deeply. The world we live in is a broken, complex, messy, violent, yet wonderful world. God's mercy-filled grace infuses our broken world with a goodness that keeps surprising us with joy and healing. God's grace also calls us to faithfully love God and neighbour above all else. And the church we belong to has the power to bind and loose. Today's church, much like the early Christians, has the spirit-given power to rethink whether or not circumcision will continue to define who is in and who is out. And because of the brokenness of all sexualities, that abuse, lust, access pornography, have sex with unmarried partners of the same or the other gender, because of this brokenness, the church must rise up to reclaim a godly and wholesome sexuality. A godly sexuality that's wholesome because it is covenanted, accountable to and blessed within the church, not left to fend for itself outside the church. And a godly sexuality that's wholesome because it calls everyone to recommit our bodies, whether heterosexual or homosexual, to be temples of the Holy Spirit, seeking first the kingdom of God and covenanting to follow Jesus every day. He says, my wife and I are devoted to our Lord with a firm commitment to the authority of the scriptures. We strive to be faithfully obedient to Jesus. We invite the church to embrace the missional opportunity to extend the church's blessing of marriage to our homosexual children who desire to live in accountable, covenanted ways. Now I look round and I recognise that as we hear those words, we will all respond in very different ways. I hope that we will all feel Chester's pain. Some of us will feel it acutely because it's a pain that we have shared personally. Others of us may sympathise with him but find ourselves profoundly disagreeing with his reasoning and his actions. Some of us might be appalled and say, what has this got to do with orthodoxy? He's gone right off the rails. Others of us will find ourselves firmly in agreement with him, saying, yes, this is the message that needs to be heard. So there is plenty of scope for disagreement 
Is there not? And this kind of thing is being played out within all denominations across the country at the moment, including ours. But if we hold to a generous orthodoxy, we will each seek to come to a clear conviction in our own minds about what we believe and why, but we will do so with open minds and a readiness to learn and open hearts to welcome those who see things differently. Because we, as we do so, we display the grace of Christ. In Christ, God has opened his heart to us. And he calls us, however much we may differ in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our convictions, to keep our hearts open to each other. So that we speak the truth in love. We listen in a spirit of grace. We have those open hearts of warmth and affection and respect and mutual support because the grace of Christ is in this place. The grace of Christ is in this family. And we heed his call to walk together in ways known and to be made known and to watch over each other as we do so. So can I lead you in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we heed your call to be holy. We heed your call to be loving. To have open hearts. To walk together in fellowship. To seek truth. To disagree in grace. And to reflect your generous nature. You, the God who sent his son to die for the ungodly and who's reconciled us all to yourself. Lord, we recognise that this whole area is one of pain and confusion and uncertainty and sometimes a lack of charity. Forgive us. Place your spirit within us. Keep our hearts open to you and to each other. We are the temple of the living God. Thank you that your spirit dwells within us and among us. And we pray that the fruit of your spirit would always be apparent in love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For we ask these things, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name and for your sake.
Amen. So let's stand and sing together. May the peace of God, our Heavenly Father. Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.